0: Hello everyone, this is the Connected Family Podcast, episode number 20. This podcast is produced by Connections Family Counseling, LLC, a group counseling practice located in Quincy, Illinois, that helps build resilient kids, strong marriages, and connected families. My name is Mark Vanderlei, and I'm your host. Today's episode is about being dad, father as a picture of God's grace. I'm very excited to have Dr. Scott Keith with me. He is the Executive Director of 1517 and Adjunct Professor of Theology at Concordia University, Irvine. He earned his doctorate degree from Foundation House, Oxford, under the sponsorship of the Graduate Theological Foundation, studying under Dr. James A. Nestingen. Dr. Keith's research focused on the doctrine of good works in the writings of Philip Melanchthon. He is a co-host of the Thinking Fellows podcast, contributor to 1517, Christ Hold Fast and the Jagged Word blogs and author of Being Dad, Father as a Picture of God's Grace. Dr. Keith resides in California with his wife Joy and family, dividing his time between the mountains and the beach. Again, I'm so thankful for doc- to, doc- to Dr. Keith for being here. Here is my conversation with him on Being Dad, Father as a Picture of God's Grace. All right. Welcome to the Connected Family Podcast. Here we are today. I'm incredibly honored to have Dr. Scott Keith with me. He's gonna, we're going to be discussing his book, Seeing Dad, Father as a Picture of God's Grace. I uh, thought we would start. Uh, Scott, if it's okay, if you'd introduce yourselves, You know, give people an idea of who you are, what your interests are, your, whatever you want to share with us.
1: Uh, sure. My name is uh, Scott Keith. I am a husband and a father i think primarily i've been married to my wife joy for 25 years this year in august so um we have three children all of whom are for the most part grown and out of the home our oldest son caleb uh he lives up here in big bear lake california near us and he's got he's married and has two children so i'm a grandfather of two as well um My son, Joshua, is actually a blacksmith and a bladesmith and a welder and lives in northern Nevada, so where my kids grew up up in the Carson City area near Lake Tahoe. And then my daughter, Autumn, she's 19 and she lives in Dallas, Texas, where she works um, as a video editor and photographer.
0: Okay, I didn't realize you lived in, so you live in Big Bear, is that correct?
1: Well, we, yeah, we, we live, we have a a cabin in Big Bear and an apartment in San Clemente because when we're traveling down the hill, we call it, um, being closer to having a place closer to the airport to land works out really 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 well so otherwise any airport is about an hour half two hours away from big bear
0: yeah big bear is a great place my sister one of my sisters lived there for a period of time and so we would go visit her and of course that's where you go skiing when you're in southern california
1: yeah i think my son caleb got 43 days on the mountain this year oh my gosh awesome (laughs) yeah that's great
0: And and a little bit maybe about what you do, your your role and everything.
1: Um, I work at 1517.org, that's 1517.org, where I serve as the executive director. Um, I've been in that role for going on four years now. I'm also an adjunct professor of theology at Concordia University in Irvine. Um, primarily, I lead uh, to the best best of my ability. Um, 15, 17, and the staff members who do all of the work through our various podcasts and blog sites and publishing house and Speakers Bureau and conference um, conference arm of our organization. And so we have about 12 staff members who wow. accomplish all of those things. We, I think, I saw um, staff from our data guy that we reached over a million people last year with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, wow. Uh, yeah. Pretty amazing. That's amazing. Pretty amazing. Awesome. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, hopefully my hope, I guess, is that this would help you to do that a little bit, discussing your book and sharing some of that story just in a tiny way. <laughs> Let me tell yeah, you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I'm, I'm thrilled to do this kind of thing. Cause any kind of um, help we can give each other as we try to get the message of the need for fathers, um, out, I'm in. So. Yeah. Yeah. Hey. Um
0: So that brings us to your book, again, being dad, father as a picture of God's grace and kind of just maybe one of my first questions or wonderings as I started to read the book was what led you to writing this and kind of what brought you to a place where you were passionate about fatherhood?
1: Um, that's a good question. I, I actually grew up uh, without a father. My, my dad died when I was two years old and I don't really have um, what I would say is a solid memory of him. I have some sort of ideas of things that I think happened, but they're not real solid. Um, But I knew probably from an, I'd say from an early enough age that it terrified my mother, I knew that I wanted to be a father and was talking about it Um, Mm. and saying that, you know, I didn't have a lot of life goals, to be honest with you. It's it's weird to me that I have a PhD now and I'm writing Mm. books and stuff because when I was growing up, Beyond skateboarding and having a family, I had almost zero goals in life. Um, didn't like school very much. Um, didn't really have a positive experience, um, especially in high school. Mm. Um, was lucky enough along the way to be uh, blessed by several men who, you know, probably realized that I was not on the comp- the, the the path that I I could be on. Um, mm-hmm. Friends of fathers, Uh, my grandfather for a long time until he died, um, an uncle for a long time until he kind of divorced out of the family. Um, But uh, friends, fathers were big for me, Mm -hmm. um, as were um, men that I came into contact with when I first started getting jobs at places. Um, I started working pretty early um, I, by today's standards, for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, around 14, 14 and a half, 15, saving up for that car, which was the ultimate goal of life. Yeah, um, <laughs> Still still is in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, and uh, through those men, you know, I kind of, I got a picture of what I thought being a dad was, and um, mm-hmm. Which was mostly, you know, not always great, to be honest with you. It was mostly sort of um, authoritarian and sort of kick-your-butt influence, um, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I needed some of that, so I appreciated, I actually appreciated some of that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, when I got into an undergrad program, after I had tried other things to avoid college, um, I met somebody named Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, who um, taught, taught for 30 years at concordia university in irvine mm-hmm. and um, by that time i was married and had um, caleb our oldest and um i i say in the book i think it's been a while but um that i thought i knew what it meant to be a dad and then i met rod and mm. what i knew kind of got churned on its head um, mm. he presented a completely different picture and from that point on I knew I wanted to do something eventually, um, with in my research talking about fatherhood, mm-hmm. but I really wanted to wait till my kids were grown up a little <laughs> bit, make sure I didn't mess it all up and sort of That's kind of the worst when you write a book about something, you know, family oriented, and then you have your family's at a garbage fire. Yeah. That's like, that's, <laughs> the, that's the worst. And so I wanted to kind of wait to see how that all went. And, um, you know, my uh, I've got great kids. Um, mm. I I would certainly not take the credit for that, at least not entirely. My wife is incredible, um, very good mom from, from very early age with the kids. Very good wife, um, very supporting of my particular views on fatherhood, which are somewhat counter countercultural, I would say, and a lot of wives might push back against. Mm. Um, while at the same time being very strong herself and very mm. much having a good sense of her own role in the home. So. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for that. I just
0: a connection to make with you. So part of my interest in fatherhood has obviously the fact that I am a father and and really wanting to do well at that and be passionate about that. But I completed my dissertation about a year ago and it involved fatherhood as I researched the relationship between emotional intelligence and parenting style for uh, fathers yeah. and so it was an interesting interesting uh to read all the research about fathers and father absence which discussed in your book um and that real problem um so just a nice connection there
1: to uh, yeah it'd be good to compare know. notes i i i give talks on this all the time and i'm always worried that my data is that up to snuff so yeah (laughs) there's
0: a lot of it out there and it is a little bit there's differences you know i think in some of it depending on what your categories are and that type of thing but um so then you in the book you talk about fatherhood as a picture of god's grace and you use the story of the, the two sons to really paint that picture um maybe give us an overview of kind of that idea introduce us to how the story of the of the two sons does that for us
1: yeah so for the listeners who probably haven't heard my renaming of it most people know that parable is the parable of the prodigal son from luke chapter 15 Mm -hmm. um and i'm really starting with writing the being dad book i've really started to get into parables um so it's been years now that i've been looking at this in more depth I'm more comfortable in that area than I am in the data. Um, you know, I'm a theologian by training. I'm not a statistician. Um, but I do think the data helps us kind of see the need, and then the theology can come in and sort of give us another another view on that need, right? And so, in the parable of the prodigal son, um, I can take forever to do this, but I'm going to try to do this slow. Um, or fast, I mean. Okay. <laughs> not, not not the other way. <laughs> um in the parable of the prodigal son, what you what you get, um, among other things, and I say among other things, because uh, uh, the theologian part of me would say primarily that parable is certainly not about giving a picture of an earthly father, right? Primarily that parable is certainly about how God views um, his kingdom and his his role as the heavenly Father in his house um, and how. Sinners enter that house, um, both older and younger sons. Um, but um, having said that, every parable too can sort of give us a picture into how Christ sees the characters that exist in this world: um, mm-hmm. vineyard owners, um, servants, and in this case, sons and fathers. Right? Mm-hmm. How he sees that, and because he uses he uses characters familiar to us to tell the story of parables. Um, mm-hmm. And he uses them in unfamiliar ways. And that certainly was going on here. When Christ tells the story, he's telling the story about a father who in his culture would not be seen as a good father. And a son who in his culture would be seen as absolutely horrible son. Probably so horrible that his society would have probably put him to death, to be honest with you. Okay. Um, and then the older son, who is sort of the paramount example, really, of what his the, his society thought his son should be. Mm-hmm. Um, who gets scolded at the end. He, really, the, the older son, who's doing what he should be doing, is the only one in the story who really gets scolded. The dad, who's really, by earthly standards, is a horrible dad by letting the younger son have half of what doesn't belong to him, mm-hmm. uh, half of what is the family's, um, really half of what the family probably took generations to build up and to go blow it on prostitutes. Um, what, what good earthly dad, would if his son said, Hey, you know, tap your 401k, um, sell the second car, sell the house, give me half of that, and all the savings, and I'm going to go to Vegas and I'm going to uh, to blow it on on hookers and drugs. Yes. And dad's like, mm, okay, here you go, <laughs> you know. But in the story, that's how it goes very quickly. The son says, give this to me, and dad. Next thing you know, dad's like, all right, here it is. Um, yeah. And then, you know the son in the story, the younger son, who mm-hmm. goes off to this far-off land to to blow all the family money, hits a rock bottom point. Um, he kind of I say in the book too, that he he separates himself from everything that his family and his father valued, all of the traditions, all of the religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. And he does this periodically through the story. And he comes on the way back. he says decides to go back, believing that um his father's servants, Have more to eat than he could make working for a rancher in this far off country. And on his way back, uh, you know, he, one of the things I've said recently when I'm talking in it on this topic is that the son, the younger son in the story, never really understands the character of his father. Um, Mm. Even after the demand, and even after the father gives in to the demand, the son doesn't really get. Um, that his father loves him so much that he'd do almost anything for him. And that's why towards the end of the parable, Mm -hmm. when he's coming home, he doesn't really believe that his father will take him back as a son and Mm -hmm. tries to make this deal um, to be a servant. Mm -hmm. Um, But before he can get there, while the text says, while he's yet a long way off, his father sees him, his heart is filled with compassion for him, and he runs towards him. Um, And lately, again, when I'm teaching on this, I'll ask the crowd, I'm like, what do we think that his dad was doing that he just, like, happened to see him? Do we think he was, like, um, vacuuming the floor and looked over his shoulder and out the window and saw him coming up the road? Mm. And one of the things that the father consistently does is what he's not supposed to do. And in this case, he's probably, after he blew half of the family's wealth to give to the younger son, he's probably not supposed to sit around in a chair all day. He's probably supposed to start help the, helping the family to rebuild the wealth. Mm-hmm. And yet, it seems like that's what he does. It seems like he's up on a balcony looking down the road that approaches the house every day waiting for the son's return. Yeah. Um, and as he does, the son actually tries to give him his confession, tries to to beg him to become a servant, not a, not a member of the family. And the father won't even hear his confession. His father loves him so much, has been waiting so much for the return of his son um, that he literally starts barking out orders to the servants to take um, very intentional steps in the text to show that he is a member of the family. Um, they put shoes on his feet. Mm-hmm. In that culture, uh, slaves or servants would go barefoot. Family members wore shoes. He puts his own robe on him, on the son, so that a passerby would likely um, mistake the son for the father. Um mm-hmm. He puts a ring on his finger. Many scholars believe that, that's, that Christ was implying that that was a signet ring, um, mm-hmm. sort of a, a ring used to sign contracts, specifically financial contracts. Mm-hmm. Um, to think of this, the sum, the sum blew half of what they had. Yeah. And as soon as he gets home from blowing half of what they had, the father puts the ring on his finger where he could go sell the rest of it and blow that half, too. That, that's not what a, a good earthly dad does. Mm-hmm. Um, not at least as we're told, um, yeah. usually. And then he, he kills the fattened calf. Um, likely the fattened calf is the most valuable thing. The family still owned. I don't know. I mean, to put this in modern terms, if, if they had sold the house to give him half the money and one of the cars, the father goes out and sells a second car to pay for a party. And that's kind of what happens here. Mm-hmm. He sell, he kills the fattened calf, throws a party and then invites everybody that I think hates him in his neighborhood to the party. I mean, these people would have all hated him because as a father, he did not culturally do what he was supposed to do. Right. He should have told the son, no, he should have punished him, done whatever. And so he invites him to a party. Keep the people that hate him to a party to celebrate the return of the son that they certainly despise. Um, yeah. and the older brother who's been working on out in the fields, right? Um, the best way to think of this is, you know, this is kind of the classic older son, younger son, right? Yeah. He's been out working out in the fields all day, out in the hot, hot sun. Um, I think he stays out a little bit longer that day because he knows exactly what's happening. Um, hmm. And he comes back in. And if the listeners can imagine, like if there's a, a, a an actual line that um, is a demarcation point for where the party ends, He puts his toe right on that line, you know, like right on it, kind of like a a foul line when you're shooting free throws, right, or the free throw line. Right on it, as close (laughs) as he can get to the party without going into the party, Um, pretends like he doesn't know what's happening, Uh, asks the servant what's going on. The servant tells him, listen, this brother of yours who was lost is found. Um, He's home. Your father killed the fattened calf. And this is when the older son gets really mad. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the son knew there was a party going on, but I don't think he knew at this point that the father uh, killed their most valuable thing that they owned to throw Mm -hmm. the party. And he's just, he's just angry as all get out. And um, the father eventually comes out and the older son immediately confronts him um, saying, what are you doing here? Um, (laughs) I like to say that, he, the older son tells the father that he's one step away from an old folks' home. He's one step away <laughs> from, but being put in Shady Pines because he's obviously lost his mind. Right. Um, and uh, the father's answer is is very direct. Now, in I'm a Lutheran, and our in Lutheranism we have this idea of law and gospel. Um, mm-hmm. That that God communicates with His law. That's His requirements um, and punishments. Honestly, you know, this is the fact that you are a sinner, and because you're a sinner. Uh, death is what you get. And the gospel, which is the other word, is that even though you're a sinner, Christ died for you, and because he died for you, if you stand in him, death will not be your ultimate reward, but life eternal will be mm-hmm. uh, what you, you get, you get a reward that you did not earn on account of Christ. And I'll say, you know, that we have a famous theologian in our system that once said of pastors that it was their job to know exactly when they had preached enough law And to come in with the full force of the gospel, not to preach too much law, not Uh to overdo the law, not to come in and add to the law if the law had already done its work. But Mm -hmm. to notice when the gospel needed to be preached, when forgiveness and life needed to be handed over and to hand it over. Um, And this is what the father does here. He gives gives the older son just enough law and he tells him, listen, um, you've always been with me. If you think that I didn't get that, I get that you've always been with me. And he says another line that's very important. He says, all that I have is yours. Now, if you go back to the beginning of the story, there when the, the younger son says, hey, give me half of what's mine, the younger son didn't really wasn't really entitled to anything anyway. The older son in their culture would have gotten it all upon the death of the father. And there was really no good way for the father to just give the younger son money. So as I implied, um, the, the father had to find some way to have himself sort of annulled or declared dead out of the family so the property could be sold and it could be split between the two sons so literally the older son likely got the other half already and the father Mm -hmm. has been living under the older son's grace ever since the younger son departed and so this line everything i have belongs to you is real it's not a it's not a a word picture it's an actual reality so you've always been with me everything i have belongs to you Mm -hmm. And then the father says, does a word turn on him? Um, the older son refers to the brother as this son of yours, right? Mm-hmm. When this son of yours has squandered our belongings with prostitutes, you kill the most valuable thing we, ha- we have, the and calf, and throw a party for him. Again, I'm going to stick you in shady pines, old man. Mm-hmm. Um, everything I have belongs to you, but we had, father says, we had to, no choice, to throw a party. Mm. Um, for this brother of yours, word turn identifies the brother as his brother this brother of yours was lost and is found and more significantly was dead and has come to life um the father's implication there is that we had to celebrate the death the resurrection of a dead man because what else do you do when a dead man comes to life you celebrate yeah now we believe really that this is what happens every time the word of forgiveness is proclaimed over a sinner that literally they're they're you know, they're being dead and made alive. Um, and so the whole focus of the book is using this picture of the prodigal son to say, Dad, what is your actual role in the house? Are you the uh, purveyors of moral law? Like, are you the ones that are called into your home to double down on the law or triple down on the law any time and every time? Um, you know, mom with the deeper voice and the bigger biceps kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Or is your calling actually a different calling? Is your calling a more of a pastoral calling in the house? Mm-hmm. To recognize when the law has done its work and with the full force of the gospel, just proclaimed over them um, yeah. and forgiveness. And this is what the, the father does in the story at the end. And he basically says, now come into the party. Yeah. like Come into the party.
0: Yeah. I I just even as you're retelling the story, and as I read the book and went through that telling of the story and the connection with fatherhood, there were several times when I'm just like nearly brought to tears because of the story and the and the feeling of grace that is experienced in looking at the Father and the sons in that way. And the use of that idea of the law has done its work really, as you were talking, connected me to this idea. I'm a counselor, and so I often talk with parents about, like, disciplining children and everything, and talk about how chi- when when children make mistakes, and they're feeling really, really, really horrible about having made that mistake, the their punishment is that horrible feeling. Right. The That's law right. has done the work in that That's experience, right. and we as parents don't have to add on to that because that's right already feel crappy. And, and that re- it reminded me of that sort yeah. of idea. I don't know. If-
1: yeah. I've got a story for that too. Honestly, um, we can do it later or now, but no, the fun, it. the funny thing is, is that when I first started teaching this, um, I would get the question all the time. Well, would you just mean you let the kids do whatever they want? And I'm like, Whoa, hold on a second. That's not what I mean at all. In fact, I think that very permissive households are very legalistic in a particular way what happens in a house where the the children make all the rules is they become a law unto themselves. Um, And if you let kids decide everything, there will be no grace. (laughs) I mean, I'm sorry. (laughs) There won't. It'll be a law, um, and it'll probably be sort of in a lot of ways a, a more vindictive law than you've experienced in a long time kind of eye-for-an-eye stuff like you see on a playground Mm -hmm. or in a kindergarten play setting, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You stole my block, I'm going to steal it back and whack you on the head with it. That's sort of what I'm arguing for is not permissiveness. It's actually understanding that there's a lot of law in the lives of children in a normal household. Mm -hmm. And that's necessary. Um, But that maybe if we should open our eyes for when gospel, grace, and forgiveness um, is a more important concept to – communicate to children than the law the law is common to them they're what is required of them is common to them mm-hmm. i'll often say when i'm teaching this that i think even in the most permissive of households children decide a lot less than we think they do about their everyday life mm-hmm. i don't think most of them decide when they'll wake up when they go to school um, when they have recess when they have lunch or what they have for lunch when they're done with school when they do homework when they do piano practice what they will how much TV they get to watch or video games they get to play, even if they get to watch them or play them or when they yeah. go to bed or if it's going to all start again the next day. I think that's all decided for them. That's all law, baby. Yeah. You know, maybe a little bit of gospel every once in a while will go a long way. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: the story I have is uh, it's pretty simple. Is that, um, There's a man who served as a conference chaplain at a conference that I go to quite a bit called Mockingbird. And um, I'm bad at conferences. I'm a horrible, believe it or not, I'm a horrible, I'm a good student, but I'm like, uh, as far as being a polite student goes, I'm a horrible student. I'm always <laughs> not paying attention, typing on my computer, sitting in the back, acting like I'm not listening. And that's what I was doing at this conference um, when all of a sudden this guy gets up and he says, um, hey, my name is Jim Monroe. I'm the conference chaplain. Let me tell you a story about my dad. And I was like, mm-hmm. What? You know, and so I'm locked in and he says literally says one to if you were to ask me today, I'd say that um, my sister and I are great friends. But when we were 12 and when she when I was 12, when she was 10, um, grace centered forgiveness didn't define our relationship. (laughs) So we fought a lot. And one day I remember we were on the second floor landing of our house and we were fighting and she was screaming at me. And I got so sick of her screaming at me that I balled up my fist, cranked back my arm and punched her in the stomach as hard as I could. He said she did what you know is normal for someone mm-hmm. who just got punched in the stomach. She opened her mouth to scream and cry for my mother. He says, and I grabbed a spray bottle that was sitting on the table next to us. I stuck it in her mouth and sprayed as much as I could into her mouth. And he explains at this point, he says, those of you who are younger won't remember, but the older ones might remember when DDT was still legal for sale in home gardens. Mm-hmm. For, for the younger people, it's a poisonous insecticide that's so damaging to human humans that it was outlawed in the 70s. And this is what he sprays in her mouth. Um, he says, immediately out of nowhere, my mother appeared didn't say a word, scooped up my sister, ran down the stairs, out the front door, flagged down the first car that came by, and off to the emergency room. Mm. And he says, I went up to my room and I waited. Mm. I waited for what I knew was coming, which was my father to come home. He said, after about 20 minutes, I heard the front door open and close, and his footfalls on the stairs as he ascended the stairway. And then I heard my door start to open, and then I saw his face. Mm. Um, And he looked at me. Jim says, and he saw the grief, he saw the terror, he saw the fear, the remorse on my face and the tears that filled my eyes. Mm. And he didn't say a word. He simply knelt down, opened his arms up wide. And Jim said, I ran toward him like a shot. Mm. And then Jim says this line that I'll never forget. He says, and he wrapped those arms around me tight And I can still feel those arms to this day, and I know whose whose arms they really are. They're the arms with nail-scarred hands. Mm. From that point on, I mean, two things. If you're a Christian, um, for Jim, Christianity remained an option even as he went through secular schooling um, because of an image of Christ in his home that was his father that day. When he deserved more punishment than he could imagine and got a hug from his dad as he cried in his shoulder Mm. Um, for those just from a secular angle from that point on jim knew there was nothing he could do that would get him out of that family because he had done about the worst thing he could possibly do yeah and he he was still in and his dad still loved him
0: yeah i just have all these bells going off you know one just emotionally about thinking about that story and how powerful it is but also as a counselor i I come from an attachment-based perspective and how that father was the safe haven, as, as we talk about it a lot, and the safe place, the thing that I'm never going to be out of this family, always accepted, no matter yep. what I do, I will be loved. Um, just, yeah, an incredible story. And to think about the fact that our father um, in heaven is that way for, and is that safe haven for us.
1: Um, yeah, well, that's the prodigal son. All. I mean, mm-hmm. that son, that son should have been out of the family. In fact, that son was sure he was out of the family. Yeah. And that there was no way back in. And the father said, you actually can't be out of the family unless I say so. And I say, (laughs) you're my son. Yeah. Wow.
0: So, so, you know, those things, that idea of it was the story you just told really reminds me of this the chapter on the magic kingdom, which was chapter six. And it's basically the the thoughts that I got from that uh, as a counselor were this idea of how we as fathers can offer opportunities for our children to have experiences of grace. And that story just really illustrates that where you use the term at one point, I think it's in a different chapter, but like, oh no, it is six. It's a release from the encumbrances of the law or the rules of the house, you know, and this idea of experiencing grace, which points them to God. And I just have I worked in a residential treatment center where we talked. About, it was a Christian place, and we talked about that often when kids would make mistakes. Of how do we show them grace in this? And is that part of that magic kingdom idea? Is that part of what you see as the father's role? How do you? How well,
1: do you do yeah. I mean, part of the book I wrote is apologetic to Christianity. In other words, part of part of what I'm trying to say is that um, if we expect children to believe in a God that we call Father, loved us enough to send another man that we call his son to die for us, Mm -hmm. that we ought to think about how damaging it is when they don't have any real life examples, even shadowy examples of what this might look like Mm -hmm. Um, and how, how uh, empowering I guess it is if they do have these real life examples, even to a small degree um, that are shadowy. And when somebody says, you know, tells them that God is love, Um, God the Father is love, that Christ loved them so much that he died for them, that they can actually say, you know, um, I think my dad loves me that much. Mm -hmm. You know, so I I have a a bit of a connection how hard it is for children who can't say that to actually believe. um, It's a very difficult thing for them, and understandably so, or even worse for children that are abused by their fathers or— by men in general, I mean it's just a horrible cycle. It's um, yeah. why the, sort of some of the stuff that goes on in the church is just so damaging not just not just physically and emotionally, but spiritually too. It's just horribly damaging. Um, yeah. But part of what I'm trying to say in the Magic Kingdom is just again what I I talked about a little bit before that you know all of our lives are daily encumbered with the requirements that either we place on ourselves or that are, are placed on us from the outside. So. Um, if we're going to a church that's just t- preaching the law to us all the time and lists of how to be better and whatnot, you know, that's not so much different than our everyday life, right? Yeah. And if too, that's what we're getting in home too. There's literally no release from this. You get it. You're, if you're a kid, you're getting it at school. You're getting it at church. You're getting it at home. You're getting it on the soccer field. You know, there's never any measuring up. There's any. There's never any release from. Uh, the requirements of your everyday life. And you'd know this better than I am, but I I was an associate dean at a college for four years, which God in his mercy delivered me from that job. (laughs) Um, But you can see this in the youth of today, that while everybody thinks that they're lazy and that they can't do anything and whatnot, but they feel incredible burden to succeed at every moment. Absolutely. Um, So much so that they'll take drugs to do it, so much so that they'll cheat to do it. You know, whatever. Um, now, that's maybe not so different in the span of of history, but it seems pretty pronounced today.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so what I'm arguing for in um, the Magic Kingdom is dad has a unique calling in the home where he's allowed to and maybe called to provide some intermittent releases to that. And that it's okay, that it really is okay to pull your kid out of school to take them to Disneyland. <laughs> you know, and to have it be a surprise that it really is okay to miss church to go fishing, yeah. that it really is okay to say yes um, when everyone else says no, maybe even when mom <laughs> says no. Um, it's okay to say yes. Yeah. I think one of the most damaging things that's come along to parenting is this idea that mom and dad always have to be on the same side. I think it, it's Horrible. It mm. it presumes that mom and dad always know best, and that there's no like, um, there's no arbiter in the case of a, a disagreement that the child has with the parents. Who does mm. it? Who's the child appeal to at that point? Um, mm. if mom says uh, no, and the, the kid really has something that they think they have a good argument for what they want to do, mm. if you don't have that, you can appeal to dad. The reverse is true too, right? If dad has said no or doesn't think it's a good idea. Um, the kid thinks he's got to go. argument, I they can appeal to mom, but if mom and dad always have to be on the same side, it's like this weird kind of tyranny. I don't, I don't, I don't get it. Um, yeah. I mean, the, how do we teach our children to argue on behalf of something that they think is good, right, and beautiful if there's never an appeal process?
0: Yeah. And it's almost kind of like, you know, our culture is so, dif- it's so difficult to agree with anyone. And when you grow up in an environment where there is no appeal process or no opportunity for discussion or appeal to, right. you know, hey, I think this is – then we either have to sub, uh, sub accept it without any level of boundary or protecting of oneself or really, really rebel against it in a way that appears – a lot of us do it in our culture these days.
1: Yeah. Uh, and I'm not arguing for some sort of like passive-aggressive move dad. that – dad coming into a situation and going, what are you crazy mom? Don't do that. But you know, I, I feel like many dads can't feel like they can't even in private moment with their wife say, honey, um, why is it again that he can't get his driver's license when he's 16? Yeah. Because, because you're scared. Mm. Um, what, what's the, what's the rationale here? Mm -hmm. And then even in private, they can discuss it, you know, that dads have to feel like that's an option. Um, not so much anymore but when I was 16 getting your license on your 16th birthday there was no more magic than that right yeah you could yeah. have told me you could have told me at 16 you can go to heaven today or you can get your license today <laughs> and I'd say well I'm gonna get I, can I get my license please yeah. you know there there is no more magic than that um there is no more magic than the first bike
0: mm-hmm. or your
1: dad telling you to go for it when you wanted to jump your first bike or ollie out of the bowl at the skate park or mm-hmm. whatever go Stan, I'm not a a sport person, but like go face to face with the toughest kid on the wrestling mat or whatever.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm reminded the language that you used in the book regarding that really is the authority to speak forgiveness. And I, I know it's about forgiveness, but the authority to sort of make the decision to give the grace to release from encumbrances, uh, even in the spite of disagreement and being able to talk about that and, uh, have that authority to make that decision in some ways is the father's unique role
1: yeah i guess one of the things i'm arguing for here is for men to stop operating out of fear even in their own homes Um, you know the the culture will tell you that your instinct is toxic um and you know to some degree wives may believe that too right Mm -hmm. and it's not toxic. Risk is not to- toxic. Risk, risk uh, is what's required to actually love someone. Mm-hmm. And so it's definitionally not toxic. Um, strength is not toxic. Strength is what's required to protect somebody. Um, power is not toxic. The mm-hmm. gospel, uh, the Apostle Paul literally describes the gospel as the power of God. Um, mm-hmm. And when Christ in John 20 and other chapters gives us the power to forgive one another, he's giving us that power. Um, The way we frame some of these words are maybe toxic, but the Mm -hmm. categories themselves are not toxic. It's not toxic to be a man or to be masculine Mm -hmm. or to exhibit these masculine characteristics in your home, to your children, um, to your wife.
0: Yeah. Well, I I love that you brought up that word toxic because I had written down on my notes today as as reflecting on this and thinking about the conversation is that really the book pushes against – Against what I think the definition of toxic masculinity is, where toxic masculinity or whatever people are calling that seems to be this idea of um, using power to put others down, using the strength to put others down. But what I see from the book and from this the story of the prodigal son and the gospel in general is what masculinity really is, is being a servant, using that power as um, in service as opposed to put others down. Yeah. Um, we, and I think that's kind of what you're talking about here.
1: Well, I mean, you know, power can be used negatively, but the right. use of power negatively, um, just because our society wants to believe it is so, it hasn't been exclusively wielded by men. Now, it may have been majoritarily wielded by men in history, but it's not exclusive by any means. I mean, mm-hmm. if we believe that we are all sinners, that means that both men and women in their own unique ways can wield any of these attributes or use them negatively or in a mm-hmm. bad way. But masculinity historically, um, has, has had some sort of physical characteristics attached to it for sure, but not always. Um, and not only, um, C.S. Lewis was described as a very masculine man and I'm not sure he could have curled five pounds, hmm. you know, mm-hmm. he, maybe he could have, um, The most masculine—one of the most masculine men I've ever met is Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, and he looks like a hobbit, for gosh (laughs) sakes. I mean, but he's powerful. And when he tells you you're forgiven, you believe it. When he tells you that he loves you, you believe it. That's power. Yeah. Yeah. That's power.
0: Yeah. And more than just some sort of physical power, it's something other than that, for sure. Yeah. Um. You know, another thought that came up to me is I know we're probably kind of running out of time here, but another you also mentioned this idea of fatherhood is not about raising compliant children. And that really struck me (laughs) because uh, as a father myself, I think, you know, when I am at some place and people say to me, um, man, your kids are so well behaved. Uh, sometimes that sets me and I'm like, wow, that feels real. That's really nice to have yeah. people think that my kids are well-behaved, you know, but I was struck a several years ago where that is not, man, it's tempting to think that that's my job, but really it's not. And I, I honestly, I'm convicted that it's to be, to disciple my kids into faith and how to do it. that's even harder than raising compliant kids because I can't have any control over that. But talk about that a little bit and what well, we you
1: see in that area. You could think about that two ways. So I I actually think there's sort of a secular perspective on this and a a Christian perspective on it. I mean, Mm -hmm. even secularly, you don't actually want just compliant children. That means that they say yes to anybody who's an authority in an unthinking manner, right? They're compliant at every turn. That's not what you want. You want thoughtful children who are able to engage and reason and make good decisions. Mm -hmm. That is not compliant, okay? Mm Okay um oftentimes a child who's reasoning through making a good decision will look not compliant because it might look like they're arguing with the premises of the person who's in charge when in fact you know all along they may desire to go along with what's happening but they want to know why yeah don't i honestly think that more people in this world ought to know why before they do something um, of, of great importance they're doing it i mm-hmm. think they ought to know why they're voting for a person i think they ought to know why they're voting for an issue i think they ought to know why they're going to the grocery store for pete steak I mean, <laughs> and that's not straight compliance um so for my children um and this took some uh, discussion when we first had kids when we first married mm-hmm. my wife very much grew up in a house where compliance was the rule not thinking not talking compliance um mm-hmm. So this took some discussion, but at the end of the day, I said, I want our kids to be smart and intelligent and able to make good decisions, mm-hmm. um, which honestly is what um, initially at least, um, you know, well let me say it more generally, children who gr- are grown up just to follow the rules and be compliant, they don't typically make good decisions when there's n- no one telling them what to do. Right. I've seen this a million times at yep. that job that God delivered me from. Um, <laughs> they just don't. Now, on the Christian side, you know, we often say Christians are called to follow the law. Well, sure, um, in a particular way, but actually they're called to be saved on account of Christ alone, which means that nothing they do is going to save them, and only Christ standing in their stead will save them. And that's about freedom. That's about being set free to be who God has said you are, which is his child. And then you ask the question, well, not what does God require me to do, but you start asking yourself the question, what does it look like to be a child of God? Mm -hmm. What does it look like to be a son at the party where the father killed the fattened calf, who, Mm -hmm. by the way, in that story is Christ, um, where the father killed the fattened calf to throw the party? What does it look like to be a son at that party, a daughter at that party? That's a much more important question, I think, for the Christian than what are the rules, yeah. And how do we
0: live out of out of that identity that I'm a son at the party uh, yeah. and set free uh, yeah. by, by the lamb in order to be able to live a life that he calls me to live? It's awesome. Yeah.
1: No, <laughs> I really, I think compliance is, yeah, it's not, a, it's not, it's not typically a good thing. Uh, mm-hmm. I think even, you know, look at. This is going to go back a little bit, but look at the Nuremberg trials after World War II. All these Nazis that are prosecuted for heinous war crimes, yeah. their excuse was literally, "Well, I was compliant to my superiors." Yeah, that's not well, what we want, right? We, we want, want. yeah, thinking,
0: yeah, critical thinkers and critical thinkers
1: decisions, and
0: and I'm thinking of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer right now, who was the guy who, you know, he ultimately— Christian, but he kind of rebelled against the World War II against yeah. Hitler and, and really was one who um stood up and definitely a Lu- wasn't compliant. A Lutheran,
1: he, he was a Lutheran pastor who participated in a plot to kill Hitler. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, for sure. No, I don't think you could describe it as compliant though. No. <laughs> crazy <laughs> crazy, yes, compliant no.
0: Yeah. Man. Well, I know, um, we're out of time and I just really appreciate hearing you talk about the book and tell the story of the two sons and what it means for you. It has meant a ton for me and the people, the the group of men that came together with me to discuss the book. It's been really powerful for us. So I just appreciate you writing it and taking the time to talk to me today. It's been awesome.
1: I appreciate hearing that. Yeah. You're yeah. very welcome.
0: Yeah. Um, well, again, uh, maybe – do you want to tell people before we close where to find – I know you said your website already. Any other places to find you online and such?
1: Um, I'm on um, I'm on the uh, Facebook. Um, okay. You can look for me there just under my name, Scott Keith. But the, the best place to go is uh, 1517.org, 1517.org, all of my stuff. I, I think probably even some talks of me doing – Talks on being dad and masculinity and friendship are up there too. Okay. Awesome. Well,
0: thanks again for being here today.
1: Thank you. Yep.
0: Thank you for listening to the Connected Family Podcast. We're dedicated to helping you build resilient kids, strong marriages, and connected families. If you'd like to continue the conversation about being dad, please join our Facebook group at facebook.com backslash groups backslash the Connected Family Podcast. This group consists of additional resources, discussion regarding episode topics, and support for building a connected family. You can also follow us on Instagram at Connections Family Counseling or our website at ConnectionsQuincy.com.